You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Don Prothrow returns in this episode along with his collaborator Timothy Callahan to discuss their new book, UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens. A very skeptical overview of the field of ufology. As I mentioned in the interview, UFOs is a topic some people get very passionate about, some to the point of religious fervor, and I don't mean that figuratively. But If you're looking for a skeptical overview of a field that's often not given a very thoughtful rebuttal from science, I think this book may be what you need. A link to it will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. I'd like to take longer for this preamble, but I'm behind on several projects and must send this out as it is. A note about the audio quality. We had a lot of challenges getting Don and Tim together for this interview and ended up having to do the interview on landline. Unfortunately, Tim had a bit of a cough, and I hope he's feeling better now, but I wasn't able to remove that cough from the audio because of the way everyone was connected. So, my apologies, but I hope it won't detract too much from what I think is a fun and informative conversation. Let's get to some Monster Talk. Today, we're welcoming Donald Prothrow and Timothy Callahan. Uh, Don is a geologist and paleontologist. He's the author of numerous books and scientific papers, including Reality Check, How Science Deniers Threaten Our Future, and Abominable Science, Origins of Yeti, Nessie, and Other Famous Cryptids. Uh, Don's been on the show several times. And we're welcoming, for the first time, Timothy Callahan, who is a trained artist and has worked for more than 20 years in the animation industry. And throughout his life, he's also had an active interest in science and the study of mythology and religious beliefs. And he is the religion editor for Skeptic Magazine. And together, they've collaborated on a new book called UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens, What Science Says. Welcome to Monster Talk. Oh, thank Thank you. you. Enjoy it. Hi, guys. So this is a book that's about a lot of fringe topics. But what's the underlying theme that unites them all within your book? 
Uh, I could say it's probably just that we're trying to approach, approach this topic as a very, in a very strict scientific manner and using methods of science in a rigorous way. Uh, too often, if you look at books that talk about UFOs, they'll, they'll sometimes talk about rules of reason and rules of logic and rules of scientific evidence, but they're not really explicit about it. And so one of the things we laid out at the beginning of the book is the, how scientific method works and what's testable science and what's speculation and how, what quality of evidence is required to establish something uh, in the scientific community, which is something really necessary because so much of what constitutes evidence for UFOs and aliens does not pass muster of scientific evidence. So I, I know that a, a lot of these themes come up on Monster Talk quite a bit, uh, especially with the eyewitness accounts and... Uh, when when things sort of get into the zeitgeist, they become uh, spotted. Like well, the go-to example we always talk about is how Bigfoot really didn't exist as a phenomenon, but once it became part of the culture, every mysterious animal in the woods was probably a Bigfoot. Uh, is that true in your findings in the UFO world? Yeah, copycat phenomenon going on. Um, it's basically the the uh, the reality is that when you look at the history of these reports, they pretty much only date back to the late part of the, uh, the 19th century, about the time science fiction arose, of course, and they go back of really to Jules Verne in some ways. And before that, if somebody saw something strange in the sky, they would call it an angel or a demon or, or some other kind of thing, but they wouldn't call it a UFO or an alien. And so we really, UFOs and aliens are just a recent phenomenon, less than a little, a little over a century old. And they really reflect a culture that really has sort of got given up looking for demons in the sky. Instead, we look for UFOs. And then there's a long history, which Tim will probably talk about, of how there's a tremendous amount of copycatting. Once science fiction or science fiction magazines or television or movies uh, introduces a particular uh, alien meme or a particular type of spaceship, it is copycatted and then spread through the uh, media to all through the culture. And then everybody in that generation pretty much expects to see aliens that look like that. So, for example, H.G. Wells' original aliens in the, in, the, in the War of the Worlds look more like octopuses or spiders. And that one may be the earliest meme we know of from science fiction. But, of course, the little uh, gray aliens we now associate with all the Steven Spielberg movies come from a much more recent generation. Uh, Tim, you could talk about this. Yeah, the gray aliens probably have their origin in an episode of Outer Limits called the Bolero Shield. And uh, it was only after seeing this that Barney Hill uh, realized the aliens were these gray aliens that... Uh, before then, his uh, wife had nightmares, that he had nightmares that were the uh, aliens who abducted them, had the kind of bluish lips, dark hair, and uh, Jimmy Durante-type noses. And then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, the reptilians uh, don't really appear until after the TV series V came on. And the idea of them being shape-shifting can be traced to that, too, since they were masquerading as humans. I think we can probably uh, track the Nordic aliens back to uh, Klaatu in the 1951 movie uh, The Day of the Earth Stood Still, where Michael Rennie is this benevolent and uh, you know very human-looking alien. Yeah, they, that actually happens so often uh, uh, in 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 our kind of area of concern for monsters, I, I've started calling them scripteds because they seem to come out of movie scripts. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what inspired you guys to collaborate on this book though? 
it was it was sort of a funny thing. Uh, I'd just done that book, as you know, on uh, on uh, Bigfoot and Nessie and the rest of the uh, cryptozoology culture with Daniel Loxton. And then, you know, I'd been thinking about it for a while and realized that we could pretty much approach this uh, same topic, the, the, the UFO topic, the same way we did with, uh, with uh, cryptozoology. And so I knew I could write in parts of it, but I really didn't feel I had the expertise in so many of it. There's gigantic literature out there and so many, many different stories and, and uh, places you can read the debunking of individual stories, but not all in one place. But Tim had done this for a lot of years for Skeptic Magazine and actually written about a number of the more famous UFO hoaxes and other types of things which aren't really what they claim to be. So then I talked to Tim about it, and that's how we ended up collaborating. Then I went to Indiana, ended up liking the idea the best and gave us a contract. You start out the book with an introduction into the scientific method. And there's a brief look at logic, reason, critical thinking, Popper's falsifiability ideas. So is there some kind of problem with basic science literacy? Yeah, well, yeah. a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that was something I felt was necessary because you really can't assume science literacy in almost any reading American anymore. Uh, so much has been, you know, just assumed it's not really there. And especially because, you know, even people who are relatively literate in other topics may not understand science very well uh, because it isn't explained very clearly, even in school level. And so you really have to spell out a lot of these things that are that are really the way real scientists operate. Because most people operate with this uh, idea of science and scientists as the stereotypes that they get from media, especially the white lab coat and the frizzy right hair and the mad scientist stereotype, right down to the sparking Van de Graaff generators and the you know bubbling beakers. That's a stereotype that we live with all the time. And most non-scientists often think of scientists that way. There's also a, a tendency uh, for them to say, well, here's a strange thing. You should explain it. <laughs> they get it yeah. backwards around. But, that if we can't explain something, then it must be UFOs. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's something we repeat over and over again in the book. The unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. And the nature of science is such there will always be an unexplained area that's on the fringe of what we've so far explained. In most cases, we end up finding out what that is and explaining it. But even if we don't, we don't resort to anything paranormal as a, as a cop-out. It's always, if it's not explained, it's just in the unexplained category. And that's basically and it's implied in the topic UFO. It's unidentified flying object. It does not necessarily mean it's unidentifiable or never will be identified. It's only unidentified at the time it was first seen. And people forget that's what UFO really stands for. That's a, a, a I think a problem in all these fringy Fortean paranormal type fields is that so much of it comes down to an argument from ignorance. We don't know, therefore it's this, which is is really kind of a peculiar construct. Yet it's universal in these fields of study, or seems to be. Uh, yes, that's very true because um, we as a, you know as human beings we like to have answers even when there are none. And if we don't have an answer or we don't have a simple explanation for something, we'll create it. Uh, it's very much human nature to do that. That's what mythology is based on and so much else is based on as well. When you don't understand something and you don't have an answer, you create an answer. And and that's true. The mythologizing of, of, of uh, cryptids has been that way for a long time and really almost in exactly the same way the mythologizing of UFOs and aliens works the same way. And as Tim and I have talked about before in other interviews, Really, what this amounts to is the 20th century's version of creation myths and, and the religion of the scientific world, which is, you know, when science uh, takes away a lot of our other gods, then we, we uh, put UFOs and aliens in their place instead. 
Yeah, that seems to be consistent uh, with just myth making in general. And I think you you actually covered that pretty specifically in there. Talked about the uh, the Roswell effect. I think is that was is that right? Uh, were you? Yeah, they call it the Roswell effect, right? Yeah, it's, it, the Roswell incident is thoroughly debunked in every sense. It's been so for a long time. But what the reality has happened is that it's gotten so thoroughly built up by the fringe media, especially these uh, late-night cable shows and all this uh, UFO literature, that, that people have to believe that there's something there just because it's talked about so often, even though it's, in fact, the flimsiest case in the entire UFO literature. And I'll just show you how flimsy it was. In 1947, when it supposedly occurred, it was not even listed among the events that were thought to be uh, mysterious UFO events of that year because it was uh, already been debunked and, and it was going to be forgotten and then was stayed forgotten for nearly 30 years until it was resurrected in the 1970s by UFO researchers. It's peculiar to me because um, that pattern of, of having the story, like, have, like it's basically... Uh, not that complicated of a story, but it keeps growing and growing and growing. So it, and I think we've talked about that a lot on the on here about other monster stories. But the idea that uh, it's one of the signs that you may be dealing with myth making is that the details keep getting more and more detailed as time goes by, uh, and more and more. Uh, it just keeps expanding, and so it literally follows a, a folklore pattern there, and I, I, the way that it gets passed around and expanded upon. So I. I really like the way that you talked about that. And now you did go into um, quite a few cases within this book. And it's been my experience that much like with uh, monsters, uh, UFOs and alien stories uh, have uh, grown these followings of uh, people who are super interested in the details of particular cases. Did you find it intimidating at all, knowing that if you're going to try to do a general book, you're definitely going to disappoint some people who are experts and have devoted their life to one case or another? There, there's, they're gonna happen. That's gonna happen. Uh, it's, and there's a, a kind of a fish story quality too to these, uh, these narratives. By the way, I wanted to add the, uh, like the Randalls from uh, Forest incident. Uh, the initial statement of Sergeant Penniston was that uh, he got within 30 meters of the object, uh, and then later on uh, he actually got up and touched it, and then after that he was getting messages from it. And then a few years down the line, uh, he decided it wasn't a spaceship after all, it was a, uh, a time-traveling craft from the future, and that it was telepathically giving him uh, binary code, which he wrote down in books, uh, you know, long books. Uh, it's very strange. And, and uh, yeah, people do get indignant uh, when you uh, attack it. You know, how dare you say this thing? And... Uh, uh, <clears throat> particularly with uh, Barney and Betty Hill, you know there is, uh, and again, it's one of these things that when you uh, investigate it, the further you investigate it, the more it unravels. We saw this also in the uh, the Roswell story. The major uh, witness who actually was a witness, uh, almost everybody else that's in the the UFO literature was never at the scene and did not report anything. But Major Marcel, Jesse Marcel, was a witness. And he was, by the time the UFO researchers approached him in 1977, I think, it was already 30 years since the incident. He'd been out of the military for a long time. He was working as a, uh, a TV repairman and not making very much money. And then along come all these UFO researchers who want his story, and the more he embellishes it, the more they pay him. 
And so every version of his, his story, what happened to Area 51, has changed and gets more and more elaborate as he supposedly remembers more details <laughs> that he can then supply for these people who make these books and documentaries about Area 51. So it was, or not Area 51, excuse me, Roswell. So it was a, a classic case of, you know, you know, somehow the money enhances memory. So before we dig into a couple of uh, particular cases in the book, you also talk about patternicity and issues with observations and the fallibility of human perception. So do people overestimate their powers of observation and memory? Yes, that's very much the case, and that's pretty much the central case, um, even more so than for cryptozoology. But for UFOs, virtually the entire field rests, and with a couple of exceptions, entirely on eyewitness evidence and supposedly what humans have seen or heard or experienced. And so we have to attack that very directly. And one of the things we do right at the beginning of the book, we have a little anecdote that opens the story, which is a famous uh, hoax from 1909 by a hoaxer by the name of Wallace Tillengast. And this is now through six years after the Wright brothers had flown. He claimed he had an aircraft that could fly at night, could fly at higher elevations, could fly for hours, uh, and all these other things. And he was going to be trying to enter in an air competition in order to prevent anyone from stealing his ideas. He was only going to fly at night. And therefore, you, know, you couldn't see him do it in the daytime. And so that was planted all through the media in New England at that time in the uh, late fall of 1909. And it wasn't, you know, it was, it was absurd to look at it now, but it was just a couple of steps ahead of the technology that Wright Brothers and Glenn Curtis had in 1909. They had aircraft that weren't quite able to do that yet, but he claimed he did. And so for the next few nights after we appeared in the media, over 50,000 people claimed they heard and saw his aircraft flying above them at night. And they claimed they saw it fly around the Statue of Liberty. They saw it in Boston. They saw it all over the East Coast at the same time. And night after night after night, this kept happening because the media kept feeding the frenzy until right before Christmas Eve, 1909. And then it was exposed and the entire hoax collapsed. And so the, the, the object lesson there is that 50,000 people can be wrong. They can all, because of media conditioning, believe they heard and saw something we now know was not there. And so in the book, we lay out very clearly why we view eyewitness evidence as pretty much the worst possible evidence from a scientific standpoint, and that it's so easily uh, you know, distorted, it's so easily influenced. Uh, the studies of people like uh, uh, Elizabeth Loftus and other psychologists have shown that humans are terrible video recorders. We remember things wrong, we put in details that didn't happen. Uh, after the time that elapses, our memories change, and we add or subtract details. Uh, and the whole idea of eyewitness testimony has shown that Bridget, you can't trust anything humans see, even multiple humans, because 50,000 people were wrong about the New England airship hoax. And so that pretty much did, did derails the entire UFO community right there, that they can't believe eyewitness evidence. They don't have much left. Uh, when I did this uh, talk in front of a bunch of uh, UFO believers a, a few months ago, when the book first came out, that's one of the first things I did, and the guy was stunned. He didn't have anything to say, because all, everything he wanted to talk about was, was based on eyewitness testimony. Another Another classic case of that is the uh, case of the Phoenix Lights, where very normal, ordinary people uh, swear they saw this formation of lights in a V-shaped formation, lights on the leading wing, uh, edge of this wing, uh, going over slowly over Phoenix, blotting out the stars. And, uh, you know, lots of people saw it. Fortunately, some people took videos of it. But the video camera does not show that. It shows lights hovering over the horizon, coming on one at a time 
forming eventually a line and then winking off one at a time, exactly like what you would expect, which was the Air Force's explanation of it, that they had dropped uh, military flares on parachutes. And these aren't these aren't kooks. These aren't charlatans. These are just ordinary folks. Uh, yeah. We we have a tendency to tell ourselves stories. In fact, is our perception is our brain putting together all kinds of stuff to tell a story. You know, even, you know, vision, for example. Yeah, I mean, there's even a better example of this pattern-seeking, which, of course, is that humans, of course, are conditioned to recognize faces, first and foremost, among almost every pattern we can see. And there's a famous hoax where one of the very first Viking missions that flew over Mars took this very low-resolution image of a the Martian surface with, of course, the, the sunlight coming at a low angle, so it made fairly large shadows of a hill. And, you know, it sort of has two little spots and a cross line across the hill that if you stared at it a moment, it's sort of like a simple cartoon of a face. And uh, this, this uh, con man made a, a whole living out of claiming the Martians had carved this face into the surface so we could see it, and that this is a real evidence of life on Mars. And it kept going, and he made tons of money off all these people who agreed with him. It looked like a face until the next uh, mission to Mars went over, and of course it shot the, uh, the same hill from a higher resolution at a different sun angle, and it doesn't look anything like a face. And then the third time over, of course, the details are even more clear, and it's clear it was just a, just a you know accident of lighting and the low resolution of that image the first time it was seen, and our tendency to see faces when there are none. It, they've adapted that story, and I, I believe uh, current claims are that the uh, the uh, what NASA nuked the the monuments of Mars, I believe. <laughs> so you know, that's yeah, well. I, I don't. I don't want. I guess we have uh, robots on Mars now that aren't finding anything. <laughs> yeah. So I I wish it were true. I mean, I wish there were colonies on Mars or ancient ruins on Mars, and I, you know, and that would just be wonderful. It, it doesn't look like the geology and the uh, the evidence supports that. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. even microbial life would be a really great find. And I, I think uh, mm-hmm. we'll get to some of those things, I think, as we go through these topics. Um, but yeah. uh, what we're trying to do is kind of give people an idea of what's in your book uh, without, like, uh, spoiling it. Uh, yeah. So I think we're, we're getting there. I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Area 51. Um, but uh, it seems like it's got a lot of different names, and I was hoping maybe you could help us clarify what should we be calling that place. Uh, well, you still call it Area 51. It, it, the, the story behind that is that right after uh, World War II was over, uh, Lockheed was starting to build these big spy planes that were designed, of course, to be flown at real high elevation above Soviet missile radar, they thought, and, uh, and air, the air signal of their planes at the time. And so they were looking for in a really isolated airstrip that they could use to build, uh, to test these planes. They were, you know, at the time they were still testing at Edwards Air Force Base down here in Los Angeles County, but there was too many prying eyes down here. So uh, the, the Kelly Johnson, the chief engineer for Lockheed, uh, was one of the people who took these flights, and they flew out of all, all this territory in southern Nevada. It's adjacent to the Nevada test site, where, of course, they were testing nukes at the time, and the uh, um, uh, Ellis Air Force Base, which is where they have uh, most of their uh, bombing runs for that area. And they found a strip, which is called Groom Lake. It's a natural uh, sort of airstrip that they uh, developed over a dry lake, very much like Edwards was when it was first developed. And it was perfect for their purposes because not only was it an airstrip in the middle of nowhere, but it also had no place where you could see it from ground level. 
that was surrounded by mountains on all sides, so there's no way of prying eyes that outside the base could see it. The only way you could see it at the time was to fly over it, and of course they had uh, uh, fighter jets protecting you from uh, flying in restricted areas. Uh, of course, today now, thanks to satellites, anybody can just type Area 51 into a, a Google uh, search, you know, for <laughs> for uh, Google Maps, and you can see it instantly. It's one of the first hits you'll get. Uh, but at the time, it was very well protected by the no prying eyes to see it at any point. And once they got that, it had different names depending upon whether it was Air Force or CIA you're talking to. They they gave it nicknames like Paradise Ranch and things like that. And that was mostly to to make the various employees of Lockheed and the Air Force feel like they were less uh, uh, punished than they were for living in the middle of a hellish Nevada desert with nothing for miles. And so they called it Paradise Ranch to sell it to the people who had to be stuck out there. And uh, then it basically, you know, kept on doing its purpose, which is throughout the 1950s and 60s, it was top secret. No, nobody was allowed to know about it except those who were on the, uh, the innermost circle. And they tested first the U-2 spy plane, of course, the famous one that was shot down over Russia and Gary Powers on it at the time. After that, they developed the A-12, which became the SR-71 Blackbird, which was so high, so it flew at 90,000 feet at Mach 2 or Mach 3, that no Soviet plane or Soviet missile or anybody could reach it. It just was completely untouchable, and it flew up there for a very long time, and then eventually they started using the base to test the, uh, the uh, stealth, uh, stealth fighter, which was also developed there as well. Uh, and all those projects, of course, were top secret until they eventually were, you know, somehow leaked out one way or another. And during the time they did this, of course, there were these very strange-shaped aircraft with very strange lights on them. In the case of the Blackbird, you know, those things flew over jetliners at 40,000 feet and zipped past them from way above the jetliners. So they've actually explained a lot of the UFO sightings from that time and that place were basically the, the spy planes higher than any normal passenger aircraft flying very fast and looking very strange, especially if they lighted them at a funny angle because they had weird shapes compared to any aircraft that's familiar. So high percentage of the UFO sightings in that area were all from these spy planes that were just uh, secret at the time. Plus, the Air Force and the CIA had an incentive to uh, create the story about uh, aliens being kept there because that kept people off the real story. It's a great cover, you know, and they don't want to just uh, disavow that kind of thing because it leaves them a chance to people look in the wrong direction. It's the old magician's trick of misdirection. But the whole thing was finally released. Uh, the CIA in 2013, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, uh, released almost everything that was ever done at Area 51 now. There are really no secrets left there at this point. Maybe current aircraft that remain top secret, the base still has top security. And uh, the thing that really clinches it is not just that the Air Force and the CIA released everything, but also that the people who worked there have all come out pretty much now that they've been released of their vows of secrecy, and they've all talked about it. A group of men called the Roadrunners are mostly Lockheed engineers and Lockheed pilots and people like that who did this work for the Air Force and the CIA, one of whom was my father, Clifford Prothero. He worked for Lockheed his entire career, starting in the 1930s. He retired in 1976 or 77, and he was the head of illustration by the time he finished. And so he had top series of clearance. And several times I remember when I was younger, he would disappear for a week, and we were not allowed to ask where he was going. And then when he retired, and long after he was released, to clear to talk about this. I think we were watching a UFO show on some cable channel late at night, you know, when I was visiting my parents, and he was laughing his head off because he said, oh, I was at Area 51 that time, and there was nothing like that going on at all. And that's what the older other roadrunners say as well. So it's it's pretty well documented. It's all entirely mythology that, that the secrecy created, and, of course, the Air Force and CIA were happy to, to allow it to continue. <laughs> You've got a very nice uh, chapter in the book where 
you do detail this and you uh, yeah. you talk about Area 51 and what's really going on there. Right, right. And I we we actually led a Skeptic Society field trip uh, a couple of years ago in the wintertime to go as close to Area 51 as the roads allow. You know, you can't go past the security mm-hmm. checkpoint. But we did that for the Skeptic Society. And there's a very funny little uh, uh, institution called the Ailey Inn, Little Ailey Inn on the north side of the base near Rachel, Nevada, <laughs> which is just a little tiny uh, watering hole with this restaurant and motel and a handful of trailer houses is all it is. And they have the, uh, this amazing displays on the inside where all this UFO stuff is on the walls. And movies that film out there, often you go to Little Alien, and some of them are actually used Little Alien in the movie because it's so legendary a place. And anyway, so yeah, we did an Area 51 trip there a couple of years ago. I went to Las Vegas uh, two years ago, maybe last year, for Christmas with my company. And, and they uh, gave us like some adventure money to go out and do different things. That was two years ago. And we went to, my, my wife and I, Took off uh, straight from the airport and hopped in a rental car and drove up to Rachel uh, <laughs> to yeah. go check it out. It's a crazy I, I, place, yeah. It's a it's long so drive, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it is. It, it, there's really nothing there. It's like a trailer park with a gift shop. But uh, yeah. I do love yeah, all they, the crap I bought. I've got t-shirts and mugs and posters yeah. and all that. So. Oh yeah, you I got you too. got a t-shirt for Blade. That's right. That's yeah. right. I was going to say, I'm wearing you, one of mine right now. As a matter of fact, awesome. they have a, for some reason a, the, all these dollar bills stapled to the ceiling right above the bar. I don't yep. know what the story behind that was. And out front, they have a uh, old sa- satellite dish that's uh, um, glued to some other satellite dish, and then hanging from the end of a, t- a tow truck cable, and that's their their flying saucer. So, <laughs> so th- th- you do mention uh, Annie Jacobson's uh, Area 51 book and uh, and give a really brief summary, but kind of a takedown on it too. So, can you mention that because that was a very popular book when it came out, but I, I was a little I yeah. was a little annoyed by it. So. Uh, Tim and I were both there when she defended her book in front of Skeptic Society back when it still met in Pasadena at Caltech. And uh, so there were 400, 500 people there. The room was packed. And uh, she basically you know, spent 90% of the time, as she does in the book, just giving the more or less mundane details of all this kind of spy craft that were going on at, at the time. All of which is stuff she got right out of the files that were released from the Freedom of Information Act once this thing opened. There was a book there. Uh, and so most of that was not that really controversial, and she wouldn't probably sold that many copies if she just reported that only. But at the very end of her book, this was the hooker that she got to get the uh, media's attention. She made this ridiculous claim that she talked to one of the roadrunners, one of the people who had worked there, and of course gave no names, and said this person had claimed that in fact there was... Uh, a spacecraft and an alien body at uh, at uh, Area 51, which had come from Roswell, and uh, <clears throat> even to make it stranger, it apparently, according to her story, this person claimed this person was a mutant that was developed by the Nazis during the end of World War, War, World War II, and it had all these strange features because they had uh, genetically altered it or whatever, which is sort of uh, at the real extreme of crazy. And then it had been covered up because it had flown through the spacecraft that had crashed at Roswell. So she managed to tie Roswell to Area 51 and then add Nazis to the whole story. So that was guaranteed to get the press attention. And if you read all the publicity you got at that time, virtually all the thing that any of the reporters ever talked about was this one ridiculous story that she talked about. And, of course, the minute she finished explaining this, the skeptical audience we were a part of just tore apart because, you know, most everything else she reported now has been corroborated by multiple witnesses. It's not in the actual Air Force reports. It's in various Roadrunners reports. But this one was only one witness, and we were all saying, well, could it have been that he may think he was senile? Could it have been he was pulling your leg? 
<laughs> but she still reported with a straight face, which I think she was laughing all the way to the bank at the end. Mm. <laughs> so in your book, you talk about some of the issues with the various types of encounters. So for a little while, we'd like to discuss some of those. Uh, but first, what are those encounter types and where do they come from? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Yeah, the uh, different scales, uh, Heineck, the yeah, Heineck, Heineck scale. Yeah, uh, yeah, Heineck. And uh, essentially the uh, close encounters, the first kind are just that you were within, uh, I guess, 50 meters of of uh, a UFO. Uh, the second kind is that you've got uh, <clears throat> some kind of physical evidence, uh, like the uh, good old Bob White artifact. Uh, uh Third one is that you've actually met with the aliens, and the fourth kind is if you've been abducted by them. And uh, <clears throat> so we have a chapter on each of those kinds of uh, of encounters. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> uh, it's particularly interesting. Again, when you look into it, you find stuff that's quite interesting, uh, but not really extraterrestrial, like the Bob White artifact, which turns out to be a, a stalactite that forms on the inside of uh, large stationary grinders when bits of metal that are uh, molten and been ground off uh, get stuck uh, together, and uh, this thing grows. It looks very organic. So what what is a uh, close encounter of the first kind? Well, you have to get within, uh, like I say, within, I guess it's 50 meters of the ship. Maybe you see an alien or you see a ship, but you you haven't got uh, physical evidence and you don't have, uh, you haven't uh, talked to them exactly. You've just seen them. That would be the first kind. Let's see. The second kind is, uh, that's the uh, where there's some kind of physical evidence, right? Physical evidence, yeah, and uh, we go through that and different uh, things. Some have very interesting explanations, like the Delphos ring in uh, Kansas that these people saw something and afterwards found this uh, glowing ring, and uh, uh, the woman and his family touched it, and her hand went numb, 
it all sounds very spooky. Uh, it turns out it's armor, really a, ar, I'm going to mess this up. Arma, armelia. <laughs> anyway, it's a fungus. Armillaria, armillaria fungus. Yeah, that has that is bioluminescent and uh, also produces oxalic acid as a byproduct. And if you touch it, it's uh, an irritant and can either uh, cause you pain or cause your skin to go numb. And uh, so, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, it's a lot of things where people don't know uh, some obscure bit of science, uh, like not too many people know about bioluminescent fungi. And so when they encounter this, uh, which which will grow, fungi grow out in a ring, they come from a central point, and the mycelia grow out and then die off in the center, and the ring keeps expanding. Uh, so when people don't know about this, then uh, and they see something odd that they may have seen ball lightning above it, it's possible. And, uh, you know, then there's this belief that it's a, <clears throat> it's a UFO. Yeah, and you could also put uh, crop circles in the uh, category of physical evidence that's supposedly left behind by aliens. And the irony on crop yeah. circles, of course, is that they have a very simple explanation. Almost every one of them has been acknowledged to be a hoax. You know, that the, 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 all it takes is a, a clever hoaxer with a board and a rope and a stake, and they can make all sorts of interesting patterns in any kind of crop you like. And it's been done over and over again and confessed by as a hoax over and over again. And yet there are still lots of people who take this seriously, and it's to me, it's the limits of absurdity that someone who imagines something would travel across these gigantic interstellar distances only just to drop patterns in our crops and then leave without contacting us. There was a uh, another hoax uh, where a guy showed a film of this light buzzing over it and forming a crop circle, and he and he's saying, "Oh my, look at that!" It was very breathlessly. And then uh, he did this to show how easy it was hoax because he said, I did this as a hoax and here's how I did it. And he, you know, did it with, a, you know, in the computer and such. And people, this one, one of the uh, crop circle enthusiasts said, <clears throat> no, no, it's, it's, it's obviously real. It's as real as light was creating this crop circle. It's a UFO. And uh, so uh, <laughs> in a way his, attempt to debunk this only heightened uh, the belief of the believers. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I know one section in the book, you go through quite a few of the alleged alien skulls or alien hybrid skulls, and it seemed like every one of them had a, a very good natural explanation. Don, did uh, your paleontology background come in handy in going through those? Yeah, I, uh, most of those were done by Tim. Yeah, no, Tim was uh, debunked a lot of them. Mostly, you know, human skulls that have been deformed, uh, you know, by being uh, you know, put in a cradle board and things like that, or various other sources. But the the one that we were running into, we'd stumble onto this on the internet, and it was this, uh, this claim that they had an alien skull from this place, I guess, in Romania. Uh, which they shows up on the internet over and over again uh, as this supposed alien skull. And hang on, the name escapes me now. Um, hang on here. Rodopi. Rodopi. Yeah, that's right. Rodopi. Yeah, it's in Romania. And the minute I saw this on the internet, I said, what the heck? That's not a skull. 
you know, and not the way they oriented it. And I looked at it closer from the pictures of it, and it's a broken back half of a animal skull, and it's probably either a calf or maybe a goat, and that's all there is to it. And if you know your your animal anatomy, you can see, well, they broke the snout off, that's all. So you're looking at the various cavities on the inside of the skull and the sinus regions and the ethmoid regions. That's what they're calling the eye sockets and all these other things. They just show they don't know any anatomy. And so I got together with a Russian colleague of mine who was uh, much closer to the sources and also a really good paleontologist. And he helped me get a bunch of images of, uh, you know, he took a cow skull out and cut it up. And he shows you can just slice right through it a certain way. You'll get exactly the same as a rotopy skull. Then the second one that was on this almost same, the same website is one that's another one that uh, comes from the Caucasus Mountains of Russia. And again, that's claimed to be this uh, alien skull. But if you look at it closer, you know your animal anatomy. It's just the, the back of the skull of a, uh, of a mountain uh, ibex of some kind, because uh, you can tell what's claimed to be eye sockets. It's actually the bases of the, of the horns. So it's just plain old anatomical incompetence that you see. And then, of course, they power the Internet to blow these images up. And, of course, both of them, well, one of them may still exist, but the rotopy skull is claimed to be lost. So there's no way to ever find out exactly what it really was. A lot of them, like the feline skull, also is mysteriously lost. And uh, the... uh the the height or depth of uh, scientific illiteracy uh, is evident when they refer to the something a part of the uh, rhodopia skull as the mouth hole. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you know, you don't have a mouth hole; you have a a jawbone. That's right. <laughs> the I remember when I was uh, maybe just in college, we found a cow pelvis. Uh, that in it was it was all uh, bleached and it made a really nice uh, mask. We called it the butthead because you really all kinds of different <laughs> different parts of uh, a, a skeleton can look face like. You know, we already have that tendency to find faces, and if you don't have the whole skeleton, it's easy to assume that parts are you know used for different things. It doesn't it? It goes back to the cyclops and the elephant skull that the the nasal yep. cavity yep. being presumed to be a giant single eye hole that sort of thing. So. Yep. <laughs> The history of monsters and rotten animals is long and, and, and deep. <laughs> so another ironically, <laughs> ironically uh, we're not talking about a level of civilization here. Uh, I've got a great uh, book on uh, that was a Smithsonian Institution book, and it uh, talked about this fossil hunter in one point where uh, he's digging up the fossil of a three-toed horse, and uh, a Sioux Indian, this is not too long after the Battle of Little Bighorn, and they were newly on the reservation, this Sioux Indian came up and looked at him, scrutinized it, and he kept on working while the guy scrutinized Suddenly the guy said in the language of the Lakota, little horse. In other words, he, was, he had a sophisticated knowledge of comparative anatomy, because they've seen a lot of skeletons, that he could tell this is a uh, this three-toed horse, which is very much smaller than ordinary, was actually a horse, and uh, you know probably if this guy had been around uh, and seen the Rodopi skull, he'd say, "Oh, back end of a cow skull." <laughs> <laughs> it's only us Westerners that are so illiterate about anatomy, not not more primitive peoples. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, another fun part of the book is where uh, you cover several prominent contactees. Uh, so that's the chapter on the, the third kind. Um, so would you like to talk a little bit about some of the patterns that you've observed within this group of people? 
Go ahead, Tim. That's your. Uh, you know, I was trying to think uh, which uh, were you thinking about, like George Adamski and some of the others, like. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, they quite often uh, form a little cult around themselves. They uh, George Adamski. Uh, he led some people out to the desert, and he talked about somebody, a doctor, uh, Williamson, and it turns out the guy was not a doctor, uh, a doctor of any sort. Uh, and all these people who were supposedly uh, uh, just ordinary folks were actually already aficionados. And he uh, went over a hill and claimed, came running back an hour later saying, I just talked to a man from Venus. And uh, there's a, a lot of credulity involved. Uh, interesting thing is that uh, paradoxically the more absurd the narrative the more outrageous the activities of a cult leader and the more often that uh, predictions and prophecies fail the more it tightens belief among the followers it tends to drive off the skeptics. Uh, I had an encounter with uh, my friend of mine and I when I was in college, kept going by the Scientology thing. We said, well, let's go in and see what it's like. And uh, we listened to the thing. I, and, uh, you know, L. Ron Hubbard was on this uh, show, British talk show, and he was uh, he's supposed to be a neurosurgeon and a physicist. And he came across as a complete boob. And they, they had us uh, interviewed by the success secretary to try to you're kind of being given a, a nudge to say that Scientology has helped you already. And I, I told him exactly what I thought, which was not terribly complimentary, and was sort of blown <laughs> off very quickly. So, uh, you know, the absurdity of the, of the narrative drives off the skeptics. So, you know, it sets up the belief system very well. And uh, go for it, yeah. Uh, in your book, you talk about ancient aliens, uh, give some coverage for that. And I, I thought you, you hit a lot of really good stuff, too. Uh, I think it's Puma Punku. I don't know how to pronounce that exactly. Puma, Puma, Puma Punku, yeah. So. And the, ba- the Baghdad yeah. battery uh, and Ezekiel's wheel. Uh, and we also, you talked about uh, Nibiru and uh, Sitchin, and we talked about those topics. But the Ezekiel's wheel topic I thought was really interesting because I'd heard, I think Jason Colavito had talked about that a little bit, um, where the uh, it's commonly uh, referenced as uh, evidence of UFOs in the Bible. In fact, I, there used to be a TV show called uh, Project Blue Book, uh, which I think was retitled Project UFO, which was... Uh, from the guy who did Dragnet. I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, uh, it that was part of the intro was Ezekiel saw the wheel, and this is the wheel he saw, and it would show a picture of a spaceship. So can you talk about what the real uh, reference to Ezekiel's wheel imagery was about? The only thing in Ezekiel's vision is, is that he saw wheels within wheels. And uh, everything else he saw, beasts with four faces, uh you know, and eagles and a lions and a bull and a human, and essentially, and they and wings and so on, all of which goes to the imagery of the cherubim. Uh, the cherub is a kind of an angel that could be appear as an ordinary man. It can also appear as the uh, this kind of winged uh, lion uh, with a human head that you see in Assyrian uh, monuments. In other words, it had the wings of an eagle, 
the fore part of a lion, the back part of, uh, of, of a bull, and a human head. So this is, uh, in other words, it had uh, the, the, the bull was the foremost domestic beast, the lion is the foremost wild beast, the eagle is the foremost uh, bird, and uh, the human head gives reason. This is a, a type of angel. It's a symbolic representation. And Ezekiel's vision is a vision of Yahweh enthroned upon the cherubim. It's just, and there's just, just this one little thing that he says, a wheel within a wheel. And that's it. And this has been magnified by so many people. The latest one I can think of is Louis Farrakhan uh, claiming that uh, something was made in Japan in ancient times and so on. And it's the great mother wheel and so on and so forth, and goes into his whole uh, racial uh, uh, superiority thing of the black people versus white people and so on. Uh, There's just just nothing there. It it would really help if people who are um, making notes off of something in the Bible would actually read the Bible itself. And... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of the, the Bible, you've got a very interesting chapter, chapter nine, uh, which is called Praying to Aliens. And you discuss some of the UFO religious groups and their uh, their beliefs. And a, a number of years ago, I did an investigation for CSI and it was into a group uh, called Share International, headed by a fellow called Benjamin Krem and all of his theories about uh, space brothers and space sisters and Maitreya. So can you tell us a little bit about this group and, and other religious UFO groups? Well, they're, they're still around. A friend of ours who is uh, into uh, move on uh, visited us and went to the uh, uh, their uh, convention. And uh, Matreas being, uh, uh, you know, Benjamin Cream is is still there doing his thing. And uh, Matreya as actually a an aspect of Buddha. It's one of his incarnations. That's uh, to come in the future, uh, the, theos- the, the theophysists, oh boy, uh, Theophis, yes. thought they had that, and uh, uh, and that Maitreya was this young man they found in India, and it's turned who became uh, Krishnamurti, and he later on said, "No, I, this isn't real. It's a, you know, you've been very kind to me and such, but I, I'm not your Maitreya," and uh, it. Uh, of course, then got folded into uh, the UFO thing since Maitreya would obviously come back down from the heavens and and uh, with this with the our space brothers and whatnot. So it, 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 there's a great deal of of religious belief uh, involved in it. There's even some uh, Christian uh, UFO religions. Uh, the Seekers in the 50s were one, and uh, the uh, we've got now the Orden Fiat Lux. Fiat Lux is Latin for let there be light. It's uh, there somewhere in the black forest right now. I think it's fascinating because um, I, I knew some of the things uh, that you covered, but some of them were new to me. I, I didn't realize um, how much of the Vril idea uh, is still tied into modern UFO uh, religious movements. And that comes from Edward bulwer Lighton, whom uh, most of our readers will know from one of two places, probably the uh, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night uh, was the intro to yeah. one of his novels. And the other one is um, 
there's a bad writing contest that they have every year about yeah. who, who can write the worst opening sentence for a book. Um, he yeah. was, I don't think he was a bad writer, but his idea, uh, which was the coming race, I think, uh, the coming race, yeah. It ties into theosophy, and it has ties, weirdly, to the Morning of the Magicians, which in turn mm-hmm. is probably the inspiration for Von Daniken. So you get this mm-hmm. fictional book that pushes theosophy that's tied to all these uh, ancient astronaut religious movements. It's fascinating to me how it all comes mm-hmm. together. Where I kind of got interested, the real thing was I saw this uh, thing on the uh, supposed uh, uh Sort of Nazism from the real society. They had this, this uh, documentary on the so-called History Channel, <laughs> and the whole thing is completely fabricated. They, and uh, the Maria Orsich, who's supposed to be this beautiful woman that was could had, had uh, contacted aliens and uh, understood the real energy and and so on, uh, is apparently was apparently made up in Morning of the Magicians. And I got some portrait of some woman, and, and um, you know, uh, you can see her on the Internet, but I don't know if she ever existed. Probably didn't. Uh, the only only thing close to a real society is uh, Willie Lay, when he uh, is a science popularizer and rocket scientist. He, he fled uh, the Nazi Germany before, the, before war, the World War II, and... Uh, he wrote a, uh, a little essay and uh, an article in Astounding Science Fiction in 1949, I believe it was, uh, titled uh, Pseudoscience and Naziland, and just mentioned in passing a society called the Warheits Gesellschaft, if I'm not massacring that too badly, uh, which meant a society for truth, who were looking for real. And he said, yes, that's right. They were based on this book by uh, Bulwer Lytton. And that's all he said. And out of this, uh, again, this grand edifice has been made out of nothing. Well, I think we have a really good opportunity here for a TV show for the History Channel. You ready? <laughs> okay. Real Housewives of Atlantis. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... Uh, yeah, you got you to find a way to sell it somehow, right? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, what we talked about at the beginning of our interview is pretty much the, the story here that there are lots of ways UFO belief and UFO cult followings have lots of the trappings of religion, and they feel a need, which we see also with uh, cryptozoology, that people like to have something mysterious in their life. And you find this, this, this sort of, you know, is this the, last, the first time in a you know, in all of human existence this last century or so, where most of the great mysteries have now been explained by science, and a lot of the uh, the mysterious religion is no longer believed by a high, high percentage of people in the world. And so you find people still have that need for mystery. They still have that need for unexplained phenomena, you know, to give them a sense of meaning or give them something that they this feel isn't quite understood. And I think that drives a lot of both cryptozoology and also UFO belief. It's all this, I let, you know, the paranormal is appealing. It's, it's, it makes it gives people meaning in some cases. It gives them something to, to, to speculate about. Uh, and we've not, you know, especially with cryptozoology taking care of all the uh, supposed monsters, you know, we don't have a world without monsters now. Somebody has to create them. And likewise, a world without angels, we get UFOs and aliens instead. So I think that's a large part of it. And then there's also this, you know, the bigger issue that people 
believe anecdotal evidence, they believe eyewitness evidence first and foremost, and that's where this comes from, is to seeing things that they, they claim they saw and therefore they believe. And uh, the people listening to them are convinced. But, of course, the thing we had to establish really early in the book was that that does not constitute evidence of scientific nature. Tim, is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, I think uh, a lot of that shows up in pareidolia. Uh, people read patterns into, you know, cloud formations, and uh, Don uh, explored, uh, you know, uh, uh, what are the lenticular clouds that people see quite often as flying saucers or something like that. And, uh, you know, we do have a need to create patterns. We are pattern-seeking and pattern-creating species, so uh, uh, that's bound to happen. And uh, if you don't have a governor on it, uh, you know, to, then uh, you can believe almost anything. Which is what science is trying to save us from. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems to be a recurring theme lately uh, towards the end of this year is uh, the idea that we keep running into the idea that all theories are equal, and I think what science does is says, no, that's not true. There is a way to filter out between what's plausible or possible and what's not possible. Well, that's our job. So, so we've got a, a final question for you both, uh, in particular, Tim, because this is your first time on the show. Uh, we normally like to ask what's your favorite monster, but uh, given the, the theme of this episode, we thought we'd like to ask you instead, what's your favorite UFO story? Yeah, as far as uh, absurdity goes, I suppose uh, I suppose the uh, the whole edifice of uh, the reptilians of David Icke uh, would be uh, uh, the favorite one as far as complete fantasy. Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite story beyond that. That's a pretty good one, though. <laughs> it is, yeah. Our uh, our last guest uh, was uh, self-identifying as a reptilian. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <in> nicely. <laughs> that's a, it's a long story, like but you, real. Can, you can listen to our previous episode to understand that. It's, it's a good story. So, <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Don? Oh, I, I guess because my father's connected to it, I would say the Area 51 story. I mean, I have a family connection to it. My dad was actually there at the right time, so I guess you would say that's my favorite. That's awesome. Nice. Well, I wish we could talk longer, but uh, I, I think you've got a great book here, and uh, it's a it's a hard thing to dive into something where so many people have so many intense beliefs about such minutia. But you guys did a good job, I believe, and I think our listeners will really enjoy this. Yeah, well, covering lots of much. interesting facets. Yep. Yeah. It, it's hard to what, decide what to include, what to leave out. It could have been twice as long easily. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've left uh, one or two encounters out. I thought, gee, maybe I should have put that one in. But, uh, you know, it, it, I could make a whole book out of just alien abductions. So. Oh, for oh, sure. Should. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's equal. Well, I mean, as many people have, right? I mean, <laughs> I've got a few oh, yeah. on my shelves, right? So. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. We know a few people personally. That's right. <laughs> but, but not too many skeptical approaches. That was one thing I thought our book no. was different from most of the rest, is that, yeah, there are a few individual books by people like Schaefer and others that attack one or two stories specifically. <laughs> but what we really tried to do with this book is to be very broad in the sense that we cover almost the entire field. And we, we, something I did also with the uh, cryptozoology book, which is introduce the rules of evidence and introduce the rules of science at the beginning to really establish ground rules, which 
which almost nobody really tries to do. And then mm-hmm. we didn't have time to talk about it, but the last chapter talks about the psychology of people who believe in UFOs, which is, again, something you don't see a lot of other UFO group books talk about. So uh, I think we tried to do a lot of different kinds of things that make it interesting for people to read. I think you've done a good job. So I, 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 maybe some people will be getting this under their Christmas trees or whatever they do for the holidays. So. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, guys. All right. Good luck. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. And this week you heard us interview Don Prothro and Timothy Callahan about their new book, UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on the show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Unidentified flying objects that people say they are seeing now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.